I think I never learned freedom. I grew up so quickly and learned how to be so concerned about appearances. Even though I've done a lot of the teenage stuff, I've still done it with a view to how I'm perceived. Right. I've been in circumstances with white people where they've asked me to explain like the plight of the black race. <laughs> right, and I'm like, right. I have no idea what the fuck you're talking right. about because I'm richer than you. <laughs> and right. like, it's this weird thing where when you're part of a certain class, you're asked to represent the entire system and where white people are just allowed to be just them. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Banker. Hello, Banker. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. And we're recording in a strange location, really. It's the Eats at Liverpool Street Station. Um, And we've got some kind of music playing quite near to us. But hopefully that'll just be a nice background sound and the rest of it will, will be unbothersome to people who don't like background sound but we'll see what happens yeah. uh, I don't mind I'm, I'm, all, I'm all in for background sound that's yeah. fine. so the first question that I ask everybody is how do you know me? so I met you um, I started going to Spark um, maybe a year and a half ago December 2016 probably because we're in 18 now and you, I don't know if you were there the first night in Brixton. You probably were, because you used to come to Brixton quite often. Right. right then. And then yeah, I was you, doing, I was doing the sound, I think. So yeah, I think I do remember yeah, you yeah. the first night you came to Spark. And I just kept coming back, and you hosted the Hackney Nights. Um, I started helping out with Spark, and we just, I guess, kind of got started getting to know each other right. from attending the Spark events and like being in the help out group generally right. having conversations around uh, the future of Spark and what else we wanted to do with it. Right, because uh, yeah, we're both part of the Spark team um, at a moment when Spark's sort of changing the the guard of who's in charge and how it works. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I'm going to be going to a different part of the country, so I'm hopefully going to be representing Spark there. Yeah, that um, should be but interesting. I, but I don't know if I can say I'm part of Spark London anymore. I might be part of Spark, but like it's, I'm evolving what I am. Um, but you are definitely a part of Spark London and a great part. Like you, you I think you are too. I think you're, <laughs> um, if anything else, in the vision team. Right. Yeah. Sure. And yeah. I've been, you know, I've, I've done my time in London. Absolutely. Um, Paid your dues. Right. So I don't feel like I'm not part of the team, but yeah. definitely I feel like. It's for the people who are still in London to shape what Spark London becomes. Absolutely. And, and I did Smut Slam with you that that's one right, time. That's right, you did. You judged. I was a judge, yeah. Which was great. It was such an interesting event. I, I really enjoyed it. How did you find out about Spark? Why did you, why did you come to Spark? Um, I actually have a lot of trouble with public speaking. And it's weird because I'm a lawyer as my day job. And... Um, I find that when I have to talk to a big group of people, I talk very fast, I'm desperate to get off stage and get out of the limelight, and I always forget to say things that I was planning to say, 
And so I started looking for ways to get better at public speaking. So I looked into Toastmasters, but I didn't want to pay for it. I looked into a couple of other things. And um, so I thought I'd take a storytelling course. And I was looking for a storytelling course when I found Spark Online. And I got a ticket. I actually got three tickets. And I invited a couple friends along. And I came along. And I just really enjoyed doing it. I don't know that I'm any better at public speaking because for some strange reason, I can only ever get up and tell a story if I haven't rehearsed it ahead of time. Right. It has to come straight from my head. I have to feel all the feelings I'm feeling while I'm standing up there and just get through it. But that's already, that's one very good way of telling a story. It's like being very much in the moment and like really feeling it. That's like a, a very important part of storytelling. So I think you've got, you know, that's, that's a good thing to have. And like doing it repeatedly is the best way to get better at anything, right? And, Absolutely. And uh, as a member of Spark, you're telling stories all the time now. I know. And I think that when I'm off the cuff, if I'm just speaking from the heart, so I could give a toast now, just off the cuff. But if I prepared, all the panic stuff comes back right. all the way back up again. Because it's whether you say what you intended to say in the way you intended to say Absolutely. it. The stakes are, are much higher, yeah. in a way. Yeah, no, I get what you mean. It's so strange for me, though, because we do um, sometimes the workshops where we're teaching other people how to tell stories. And I haven't done one, but I've been there when... Um, someone else did one right and we're sitting in the room and she's teaching and she's saying this is how you prepare this is what you do this is what you do and I don't do any of that stuff so it's very strange to me if I ever have to teach a storytelling workshop one day that I'll be telling people the steps to prepare that do actually help people tell stories but I wonder sometimes because a lot of times the thing that stops people from telling stories is worrying about telling a good story and worrying about having all of the parts of telling a story. Right. And for me, I think that's what scares me and is what is bad about public speaking when I do it being prepared. Because I worry so much about it going well and less about my interaction with the audience. Am I enjoying telling the right. story or giving the speech? Are they enjoying me being there? It's the school script of... The, you have your points, you sound a certain way, right. you come across a certain way, and you get so caught up in that that you might not end up telling a good story. But you can teach both ways, right? Where you can give people the tools to help their anxieties about being good, but you should also... I always want to tell people what has worked for me. Is yes. That's kind of go out there and have fun. Right, that's right. And there's not one way to tell a story. Whatever. There's so many different... And people are so different. Like, everybody's going to tell their story in a different way because they're a different person. And that's great. That's one of the things that's so enjoyable about Spark, I think, and, and storytelling in general. Um, so the second question I ask everybody is, what do you do now? Which I think we've already touched on, but yeah. I guess... So, full-time during the day, I'm a lawyer, I work at a small company, um, and I just do all of their legal bits, and nowadays I'm, like, producing the Brixton Nights at Spark, and on Monday I'm actually going to, well, I should probably not have set a date, since I don't know when (laughs) this is going out, but I'm going to host the Brixton Night, and um, yeah, so Spark at night, lawyering during the day, yeah. (laughs) I try to find some volunteer-y bits to do as well. So, Well, you, you, it, already, it already sounds like you've got a full full schedule. Completely so, full. It's so, insane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like when you're... So you're, you're a lawyer. 
And does that involve you actually speaking in court? Then? No, not at all. Right. Um, the most I do probably is teach people how to stay um, within the confines of whatever the regulations or the law are around business type of transactions, like um, buying and selling securities and things like that. So giving presentations that are like teaching but not necessarily ever being in court. If I'm ever in court, it's because something I've done has gone horribly wrong, so I don't ever really want to be in court. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not keen mm-hmm. on court either. And, and if I ended up in court, it really would be something I'd done <laughs> absolutely terribly wrong. So I guess public speaking isn't something, weirdly, that you particularly do as part of being a lawyer, apart from when you have to kind of give presentations or training or stuff like that. That's right. Um, but for me, I almost feel like those presentations and those trainings are even worse because you're facing your colleagues or your clients. Yeah. It's not a room full of strangers. It's not um, people that you might never see again. You're going to see them 10 minutes later and then 20 minutes later and then again an hour later. You're yeah. going to see them the next day yeah. and the next week. So it, it, it's so nerve-wracking for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, for sure. And like, why, why, did you, why did you become a lawyer? So I've wanted to be a lawyer since I was eight years old. It's the weirdest thing. My grandfather was a lawyer. He was a barrister, so wig and gown. And he went to Oxbridge and moved back to Nigeria, owned his own chambers. And all he ever talked about was his clients and the amazing cases that he was working on and traveling to, from country to country representing people. And his passport was like the biggest book you'd ever seen. It had visas from everywhere. So and it was, just was the coolest job I could think of. Did he know like international law then, I guess, if he was moving between different countries? He was being a lawyer in different countries. That's well, the, What en- ends up usually happening is you're a lawyer in certain jurisdictions that people like to travel to to establish businesses. And so you'll go for meetings with your clients in the countries that they're from, but you'll also go to meetings in the countries where their businesses are. Right. And you go into meetings where um, their accounts are. Right. Um, (laughs) And so he was um, qualified in Nigeria, qualified in the UK, and I think some offshore jurisdictions. Oh, wow. It's almost like like being like... It's almost like being a, a vet compared to being a doctor, uh, yeah. like knowing dif- like how the different systems work. That's like harder than knowing one system completely. Uh, yeah, exactly. Wow. And so, so that was your granddad, right? Yeah, my granddad. And and that inspired you to want to follow. I couldn't think of anything cooler <laughs> when he was doing it. It, it. it turns out it wasn't what he made it out to be. Which is not entirely true. I do it a very different type of law than he did. And in Nigeria, the way you're a lawyer is you have to do everything. You have to learn everything. Whereas here, um, you land and you go and you be a trainee at um, a law firm and you specialize super early. And the problem with specializing super early is you might get very, very good at what you do, but you also might burn out much quicker than if you were a much more wide and varied, interesting practice. Right, keeping your mind alive and interested rather than just, like, slogging every day at the same thing. At one tiny thing, yeah, that's right. But but you have done that. I have done that. So you are very good at one specific thing. Yes, but then (laughs) I decided a couple years ago that I wanted to get the more general experience, so I took a massive pay cut and... um, now I'm um, it's kind of like a locum 
for doctors where you work at different companies for extended periods of time and you learn the business. So oh, cool. I worked at one company for two and a half years and I'm at, at a new company. I don't know how long it's going to last, but I'm learning a completely different aspect of the legal field. Right. Wow. I mean, yeah, law is always something that, like, I'm, I'm always a bit in awe of people who can get their mind around it. A bit like doctors, like anything where it's super technical and specific and, like, you have to be really organized and, like, get it right or you, you know, it has big consequences if you oh, get yeah. things wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So, I'm, you know, I, I'm always a bit in awe of people who can do that because I, I don't think I could do that. Even now, eight years in whenever I'm starting a new job I still feel like I have to psych myself up to do this be very organized make sure you're doing this make sure you're doing that I write little notes to myself I have post-its all around my desk about things I have to remember to do Um, and eventually things start becoming second nature and you get used to the kinds of documents that you're reviewing and the things that you're asking questions about and the things you're pointing your clients to but in the beginning you're just like no matter how many years of training you have, you're just a normal person who has to collect their thoughts and get their like mind together and around what you're for. Like, forcing yourself to focus on things, right. I think, is the divide between certain jobs and being an artist. Because being an artist, you can allow your mind to wander and you can allow your work to follow your mind. But in other jobs, you have to... Force your mind together, but there are some people who have this like pinpoint focus. I envy those people. Yeah, me yeah. too. Me too. But it sounds like you might not feel like you have that pinpoint focus, but you're you're you've got systems in place that yeah. give you that focus. And I guess that is something I can relate to. Is yeah. like a, a even though my area is in the the arts and creative stuff, I'm still there with post-it notes, making myself. Uh, focused like because I don't naturally do that yeah um, so that's- it's, it's so funny when I was in law school I feel like I found out there were so many of my classmates who were on Adderall or Ritalin who, that helped them focus right and I wouldn't be surprised if there were colleagues of mine who had that kind of help as well and antidepressants and all sorts of things and I just wonder sometimes am I cheating myself by forcing myself to do it without any help. help yeah I don't know <laughs> I don't know there's pros and cons to help absolutely right yeah. so I mean and the and you know law in itself is quite a kind of like a profession where there's a lot of kind of like mental health concerns and like alcohol and drugs and things like this are a big part depression of, suicide right exactly it's a bit nice <laughs> yeah I mean I think any I think all of the high powered kind of like doctors are similar Absolutely. I think which is a bit, bankers. You know, yeah, yeah exactly exactly anything that's that, that that's that high high pressure which I, I mean I, I'm not I'm not a fan of high pressure but I guess it's the exchange you get for like better money than some other professions but that's true that's true but then I wonder about it sometimes all of us human beings because sometimes when you hear about artists who are committing suicide and depression and all of that stuff right. too why are we doing this to ourselves? I know, I know. I mean, this, this is a big part of what I'm thinking about why I'm moving out of London and stuff is because, is yeah, it's not healthy. No, it's not. Um, and, you know, whatever area you're in, I think, don't push yourself as hard as, as you know, as, as, as you think you should. You know, push yourself less hard, uh, everybody, like, Because what sure. are you accumulating all of this for? If... Right. Exactly. What's the point? What's the purpose? I mean, that's definitely been... Like, I don't have children, I'm not going to have children. So 
that's that means that my life on earth is is my life yeah you know like I can't wait till a different time I think I started thinking out a couple of years ago like you know you're working so hard for this end goal but if the end goal doesn't come right you need to make sure you had a good time on the way on there on the way there yeah yeah, yeah. no yeah. I think that's absolutely right and I spent most of my life I grew up in a very conservative delay gratification household and you couldn't do this until you've done that and you couldn't do this until you've done that and even with food you cannot have dessert until you finish your meal you're not going to be allowed to go on holiday unless you get certain grades and right, you okay. can't run upstairs until you've said hello to everyone in the living room and so I grew up thinking that all of those rules applied like you had to finish school before you could have a boyfriend you had to get the best grades or you wouldn't get a job and you'd end up homeless on the side of the street and you had to have these grades or you wouldn't be valued as a member of society and then so I did all the school did all the grades did all the graduating and I came to the end of it and I thought that happiness would finally be this gift that I would get at the end when I got this great job and moved to a country and I was living on my own two feet and had this independence that I'd worked this hard for and it wasn't I was just still the same person just with nothing to strive for anymore very disappointing right and you and hadn't done the stuff that other people do the, whatsoever what to know how to ma- navigate it yeah i forward. was 27 or maybe even 28 before i ever got drunk wow well, that's not true um <laughs> but before i got drunk on purpose and right. like mindfully right um because i'd done idiotically maybe the year before 26 aha whoop-de-doo um <laughs> but i just i uh, the I delayed so much traveling, I delayed so much thinking that um, if I did these steps first, then there'd be some magical thing that happened at the end of it and everything else would just fall into place. Because that's what I'd been taught and it just didn't work out like that at all. (laughs) Right, no, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like whatever you're taught, like whatever you're upbringing, like you'll discover its limitations. Yes. and the, the, you know, there are also problems with having a kind of complete freedom to do anything you like very early on, like in life. It must make you sort of, I don't know, like, yeah, you've, you've had to do a lot of the teenage stuff yeah. late. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. teenage stuff's hard enough when you're a teenager. You're, exactly. But at least you're a teenager, so you're kind of, you come back from it a little bit quicker or whatever, or you kind of, you don't know how dangerous things are or whatever, so you you make your decisions yeah but like it's 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 that's that's a tough call and i can you know i can sympathize with the difficulty of that i think i never learned freedom i think i grew up so quickly and learned how to be so concerned about appearances that even though i've done a lot of the teenage stuff i've still done it with a view to how I'm perceived. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean and and, and so your accent is ambiguous. Yes. Right? So because you've lived in different places. Mm-hmm. So what's your like journey through the world been? Um, it's really funny because I had to come out of the closet at work today as not American <laughs> because people tend to assume because of my accent that right. I am. But I was born in Nigeria in um, a place called Wari, which is in Delta State. And Wari and Delta State are famous because 
that's where there's oil in Nigeria. And a few years ago, that's where it was the site of uh, issues with the government of Nigeria versus the people who are from there because it's also one of the more underdeveloped parts of the country. So there's right. oil there, but the oil money gets like grabbed out yeah. and sent to like other parts of the country. When I was um, four years old, my family moved to um, Holland. And I, we lived in Holland until I was nine. Um, we moved back to Nigeria when I was nine, and I started um, primary school in Nigeria. I went to secondary school in Nigeria. When I was 16, I moved to America. Went to a tiny school in Pennsylvania, and then moved to D.C. Uh, went to law school in D.C. And Well, I worked for two years, then I went to law school. And then when I graduated law school, I moved to London. And now I've been living in London for eight years, which is insane to me. Wow. Yeah, yeah, because you've never lived that long, really. In any city. Right. Yeah. Five years was my max before I moved to London, and now I've been here eight wow. years. And even when I lived in Nigeria, I lived in Wari, I lived in Port Harcourt, and I lived in Lagos. So I didn't even live in any one city in Nigeria for right. more than five years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, because I, I feel quite, like displaced from space and like location because I've moved around quite a lot but only within the UK so if I've only moved around within the UK and I feel that then I can only begin to imagine what it's like to like have that in a global sense of like different countries different languages different cultures and also places where you're seen as different Mm -hmm. and places where you're not seen as different and whether you feel different in those places where you're seen as fitting in yeah like all of those complexities I feel like I don't feel like I fit in anywhere I feel like I'm not Nigerian enough for Nigerians I'm not American enough for Americans I'll never be English Um, (laughs) which is probably a blessing yeah Um, it's funny though because people make fun of me for not having developed a British accent throughout my time here because most people it's something they aspire to yeah Um, (laughs) But it's funny, though, because I feel like English people are so odd because they'll have an accent and they'll hold on to that accent no matter what their life, what direction their life takes them. They never aspire to change. I don't think it's never is the right term because I'm sure there are some people who have. But more often than not, you meet people who are so proud of like the part of the country that they're from and they hold on to that so strongly and it doesn't matter what they look like and what they've done and where they've gone to school they hold on to that and then you meet the other people who have the um, aspirational accent I call it and there's nothing to them except this thing this cut glass accent and they're not more intelligent than anyone barely richer than anyone (laughs) sometimes but it's this thing that they hold on to as though it proves something about them but then I compare that to myself and I wonder to myself, I don't think the American accent was aspirational for me. I think it was convenient in England because people treat you much nicer if you have an American accent because you're an expat rather than an immigrant to yeah. them. And well, also, let's be real, like there's a lot more people in America than there is in, the, in, in England. Absolutely. So, uh, it's perfectly reasonable to say that the American accent is the standard English accent like for the people who exactly. actually But speak I grew English. up in Nigeria, which is an ex-British colony. Right. So the British right. accent came to me first. And right. when I lived in Holland, I went to British school. So that came first. Right. But for some reason, I've held on to the one 
it's back to perception again. When I moved here, I had a Nigerian passport, but I love traveling. And I traveled from country to country, and I'd speak in the accent that I imagined that the people in the different countries would um, warm more to, would be friendlier to. Right. And even still here, I feel like people are much friendlier to an American accent because they assume that you'll be that you will speak to them and make direct eye contact. Right. Whereas when I'm in Nigeria, I speak 100% in a Nigerian accent. Right. When I speak to my family, when I talk about food, there are certain topics that I switch to that I immediately switch to my Nigerian accent. So it's not something that I think about, but it's it's my chameleon quality, I suppose. Right. Yeah. And that's interesting because, you know, it's, it's interesting to be, to have a chameleon quality at the same time you also have, because you're black, it means that when you're in like majority white countries, you're a chameleon who stands out. Yeah. So you're like, like the Americanness of your identity actually helps you to, to become more of a chameleon. Especially here in the UK. Right. It's funny because um, British people think that they're not racist. <laughs> and they think that um, <laughs> racism and slavery is Only a special America. American yeah. thing. And so you're absolutely right. I haven't thought about it in a while until very recently where when someone kind of brought it up to me and I don't think she intended to do it, but having an American accent in England means that white people perceive you as American rather than black. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And so you're a Western yes. uh, person of color right. in their eyes, although you know, the more racist they are, the, the less likely they are to think of person of color in that sense. Absolutely. It's never direct here. Well, that's not true. It's been direct a couple of times, but it's never conscious. In, hmm. It's conscious. People don't take ownership and responsibility of their direct racism here. Right. They pretend that it's something else. Right. It's all manners, isn't it? It's all, it's all like bound up with the class system, Absolutely. with the accents that Absolutely. you were talking about. I mean, there are so many accents in the UK. Yeah. It's a tiny country. Absolutely. Like, and uh, as someone who's moved around the UK, like having a, a an English accent in Wales ain't ain't, ain't a good look. It's not popular, <laughs> and understandably so Absolutely. because the English have not treated the Welsh very well. Yeah, they've been abominable in most of the countries they've been to, which yeah. is why it drives me insane that people connect the accent with intelligence right. and <laughs> progressiveness. And right, it should be a pirate accent. It should be like not not pirates because pirates were were cool actually. Like it should be like a criminal accent. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. absolutely, it should be. Yeah, yeah. it's insane to me. Yeah, um, it's. The UK, yeah, it's been an interesting experience. It's, it's funny though because I hate it when it goes to, oh well, then if it's so bad, why are you still here? But the I love that question from British people because or English people, whatever. Because if you look at the world and you look at where they are and like where they've gone to and where they've taken hold of and pretended that it's belonged to them. And even till today, there are still British people settled in so many different parts of the world where no one asked them to be. Yep, yep. And if 
um, we're gonna misplace Windrush um, passports and start deporting people, we should be doing it in more than just the UK. Right, right, right. <laughs> we should be doing that everywhere. What if all the British people, Australia, um, South Africa, Zimbabwe, all over the world were sent back. Trinidad, Jamaica yeah, yeah, were yeah, sent back yeah. to where they came from. What would that look like? Right. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Like we were the, the kind of the racist sort of idea is people are coming over here, stealing our jobs, and our resources. Our jobs. Well, that's just the in, inverse of the reality exactly. of what happened. And I think you know, I've, I've, I mean, I'm not being original here. There's a lot of people of color who write about this that I've read, so I'm I'm probably like referring to that in some ways. But I think it is like like a kind of white guilt thing that like that we're on one level people know that we've stolen so much that, that, that we have to like turn that around and, and, and focus it on a, and you see that on a on a kind of non-big level in, in families you see that all the time with yeah. some or relationships someone blaming somebody else for the things they feel guilty about absolutely um, and so it's a very human thing to do but unfortunately it's, it's also a massively hypocritical and uh, like unhelpful for everybody it's also that we we don't understand us human beings we don't understand that our similarities far outweigh our differences and that we are all being manipulated and so in America in particular and here in the UK nowadays as well um, what happens is people who amass all of the wealth, and I include in that the people who control the news media. Yep. And I, I, I'm going to sound very conspiracy theorist, but follow me for right. a second. Are trying to turn poor white people against all minorities, right. of every ethnicity. I think that's true. And they've been doing this for years. Yes, yes. Because most of the people I'm talking about who are in Australia, well, Australia might be slightly different, but most of the poor people that went, went to Australia didn't go by choice. No, they were, because they, they were forced criminals. to. They were, yeah, yeah, they were criminals. People. Or forced to do so because they, there was nothing, um, no economy for them here. But the people who ended up in most of Africa were very affluent, and they went and they took these huge swaths of land and just called themselves like owners right. of the entire place. And the poor people who were left here probably had not a lot to do with that. Right. And then we turn it around many years later and the rich keep getting richer, the rich own more and more and more and more and they see that uh, the poor whites are turning against them so they say to the poor whites, oh no, this is not us, this is those immigrants who are yeah, taking yeah, our jobs. Yeah, yeah. And at a certain point in your life, you, poor white family in whatever city in the, in the UK, if someone says to you, Black people are your enemy, Chinese people are your enemy, Jewish people are your enemy, Eastern Europeans are your enemy. Like, for crying out loud, like... Right, right. Like, at a certain point, you have to understand... Like, you have to take responsibility for what you think. You cannot let this be fed to you every second. Right. Now, suddenly, Muslims are your enemy. Right, right, Why right. now? Right. Why haven't they been your enemy before? And... I, so, I, so, I don't think that it's the same people that we're talking about when I talk about the Brits who are like all over the world and the Brits who are telling me that I should get out because this isn't my country but I think we're all being controlled by the same people and we all need to just sit around and think like who am I why do I feel this way about this person what is it about my own fear right. but also why does it matter there's, right. there's, this world is so big and I know that we're running out of resources but we're running out of resources 
more for future generations. And also the person that I'm competing with is not you, my neighbor. The person I'm competing with is the person who owns all of these properties and right. is driving up these prices. Yeah, I mean, if people want to think where our, in inverted commas, jobs have gone, they've gone to other countries. Absolutely. Like the, the, the industries are in other places yeah. in the world. And, and so those choices are being made by very rich people right. who look just like us right. or just like you. Right. Sorry. Just like me. No, yeah. no, fair. Yeah. You know, that's absolutely fair, but, it, but it's such a small minority of people absolutely. as well. But then at the same time, I think part of it is, you know, part of the thing that helps us to be divided um, is that we're not, you know, I can only speak for the UK, but I think it's definitely the case in America too, and uh, I don't want to sort of speak globally, but we, we, we need to learn real history. Absolutely. Like, rather than the false history that we learn in school, like you say, so many people in this country think that racism is an American problem. It's insane. And it is ridiculous. It's it is, an, it is an American problem, but it's also a European problem, yeah. and it's a, an American problem because of you. Because of the UK. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Not and not just the UK, yeah. but but significantly yeah. the UK. But I mean, you've been to Holland. You've lived in Holland, yeah. another country yep. that is they a big were pioneers. Part of the yeah, they exactly. were huge pioneers. It, I think. Yeah, I think it was a Dutch person who invented the concept of race in, yeah. in uh, commerce and the triangle slave trade. Right, um, right. But did you know this? I don't know how true it is, but. I read a Guardian long read article, this kind of person I am, um, <laughs> that the United Kingdom government just finished paying off reparations that it was paying to former slaveholders yeah, that's right. in like 2015, that's right. which means my tax, my tax money, too, yeah, exactly. my tax money went toward paying people back for their belief that they had the right to own another human being. Yeah. How insane is that? I mean, you come over here, you pay off the taxes on slavery that you were never a part of. Right, or you were part of on the wrong side. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Yes, of course. Which is insane to me. And it's insane to me that, because think about it, I'll go lawyerly a little bit on this. <laughs> I think that, so basically, if you and I get into a contract, and um, you are paying me money over a period of time. But after a certain point, that contract is deemed to be illegal or invalid. You, we can go to court and say this should be struck and you would not have to pay me anymore. I couldn't enforce that contract against you. And so after slavery was ended, um, this, in order to pass it, first of all, the only reason why the slave trade ended was because it became cheaper to get tobacco and sugar from the East Indies rather than the West Indies. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. ended because it was a, of some moral I know, it was, a, it was a capital decision. A capital decision. <laughs> and then in order to calm down the rich um, yep. holders, um, money was borrowed from the Rothschild Bank and I'm sure a collection of other banks, which was negotiated yep. by those people themselves. And there was indentured servitude as well Absolutely. because people, did, people still had to work yes. even when they weren't officially exactly slaves. Exactly, anymore. And so it's so wild to me that a court, like that no one has decided to go to court against the British government for entering into what would now be considered an illegal contract, which is we've taken away your right to own people and now we're going to pay you back 
for that. So now that we've decided that that's not something that we can do anymore, how come nobody said, well, we don't have to pay off this money anymore? Well, that's the thing. Reparations were paid, but to slave owners, yeah. not to people who were enslaved. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's absolutely terrifying. To so the countries that were destroyed, to the economies, to the human capital that was like decimated over generations and generations. Right. And we... In England, don't talk about it at all. Well, in America, we don't talk about yeah. it enough. It's insane. It's insane to me. But and I mean, the windbrush thing that you mentioned as well, like that's 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 whack. With all of this in mind, because you know when we're talking about people from the Commonwealth who've come here because they're British citizens, right. they're, they're they're people whose countries and their lives, their their ancestors' lives were taken up in making this country rich. Yeah, that's why it's called the Commonwealth right. because it was considered <laughs> right. that anything that it owned could come back to and the I, I've interviewed United like, people who were in that Windrush generation who came over in those ships and they experienced racism straight away. Like When they came here they weren't like welcomed in with the open arms that people imagine happened to them and then they worked for years and years and years to be accepted you know I've talked to like a particular woman I'm thinking of she was a a midwife so she was like delivering the babies of all the white people in the neighborhood and so then uh, uh, obviously after a period of time they decided she was okay right but you know she's the kind of person who's now being deported after all of that work all of that uh, it's so it's disgusting really disgusting it's disgusting but it, I, I want to say it's human nature, but I just don't believe it is. I think I was having a conversation about this very recently. We were trying to explain to an Italian man that whiteness is a social construct. It doesn't <laughs> actually exist. Race yeah. is not something yeah. that exists, in particular in America, but it makes sense in the UK as well. Absolutely. Um, when Irish people arrived in America, they were not considered white. Right. When... Um, um, just certain other classifications. Eastern Europeans here yeah. have the privilege of whiteness by how they appear, but are not considered melded into the um, majority right. and are still seen as an other. And people In- can be chucked out. Like that's what we're doing now. Like it's like you Eastern Europeans were already experiencing the brunt of kind of xenophobic racist attitudes. Um, but now it's like Germans or like yeah. Italians. Yeah. Like you're, you're, the Italian friends yeah. you're talking about could get chucked out of whiteness Absolutely, anytime. absolutely. And in the UK, they do it all the time. And the way they do it is by having the distinction between British and English. Right, right. Because absolutely. <laughs> no matter... So this is how my friend explained it to me. My friend, and I don't remember where he got it from, but it was from some paper, is the cost of whiteness in America is you have to agree to let go of your other culture. And so if you hold on to your other culture, you'll never be white. You can be Irish-American, you can be Chinese-American, you can be African-American, but you'll never be American. And so in the UK, if you blend in enough and you have the right accent and you go to the right schools and you anglicize your name, you can blend into being English. But if you insist on being Spanish or Italian or um, whatever it is, even if you appear white, you will right. never be considered English. You will always be one of those things. Right. And um, the concept of whiteness isn't discussed as much here because we're in a place where everybody presents, or most people, most of the neighbors who are trying to come in present as white, but um, they will never be considered English. And then 
if you insist on having another language, if you insist on your name being not the names that are the agreed names, I suppose, right. then you will never be fully integrated into I mean, the society. A great example of, of that, I think, for UK people who are trying to get their head around that is one of the most famous uh, people who we consider to be English uh, in the UK is Oscar, Oscar Wilde, mm. was Irish. And when he came to, to Oxford, he changed his accent to posh British, and he was massively accepted for years and years and years. And then, obviously, the fact that he was gay made it like harder to be accepted by the establishment, and, and things became complicated. But like, like he changed, he had to change his accent completely. If he had carried on being so Irish, wild. this person who we think like came up with all of these amazing phrases that like people from the UK love to say to show how educated we are, yeah. like they would have all been in Irish, and uh, they would not have been listened to. Absolutely, because at that time, the Irish were the what nowadays in the same position as um, Muslims are yeah how society right, religious and treats them the yeah absolutely. religious persecution yeah I mean my, my stepdad was from Northern Ireland so like I, I and grew up in the troubles you know and that's the funny thing as well like people in the UK like to point at America but they also like to point like one of the things they really like to say is like bad things happen in Muslim countries oh, but not here and like actually like what was happening in, in Northern Ireland in my lifetime yeah like, was very similar to the kinds of terrible things that happen in other places where there's army on the streets. Memories. Stuff, you have such short memories. such short memories. There's yeah. a reason why there's no bins. Well, <laughs> right, there are right. bins again, but there used to be no bins anywhere. Right. And it wasn't because of Islamic anything. It was... Their terrorism wasn't invented in twenty no. in um, 2001. Right. Yeah. Well, the suffragettes that everybody is... So uh, celebrating at the moment, they they exploded like letterboxes and, and bins and Absolutely. stuff like that. And the way they were treated by the police even then. So when you see Americans now saying that if you um, protest or if you stand up for the rights of someone who is being suffering, then that means you're against the police. It's because we have such short memories. People don't understand how much everybody at so many various stages of humanity have had to fight against right. the um, face of the government, which is often the police. And I'm yeah. not saying it by any way, shape, or form that um, attacking them is the right way to be, but don't pretend that now that you are in the space where you have all of the rights and um, the privileges of citizenship that you can turn your back on anyone in our society who doesn't. Well, and also the, the, the social attitude of society affect how the police behave as Absolutely. well. So, like, if we have a racist society, which I think we do in the UK, then we have a racist police force. Absolutely. And if we've got a racist police force, that's dangerous. It's so dangerous. And, like, you know, as somebody who has, uh, you know, non-white members of my own family, like... That, you know, I'm super aware that when I walk down the street, I don't get stopped and searched. I've got massively long hair. I look like a hippie. If anybody's <laughs> going to have any drugs on them, it's probably going to be me. I've never, ever been asked, like, stop and search. Whereas, you know, there are people within my family who, you know, get easily get searched. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, like, I'm, you know, thinking of my niece and she's 13 at the moment. So, like, I guess she's just getting into the area right. where she's going to get you know, yeah. a lot of hassle going on. It's really funny. I had a huge argument with a very good friend of mine the other day. She's um, born and raised in England. Um, her 
family came here from West Africa um, when they were young, so her parents when they were very young, and she was born and raised here. And um, we were talking about a kid who had been chased by a police officer and tried to swallow whatever drugs he was carrying. So if he could swallow these drugs, you can imagine how small the little package must have been, but he choked to death on the package while he was tussling with the police. And she was furious at him because she didn't understand why he ran, why um, he tried to swallow the drugs, and she insisted that he wasn't killed by the police. And I'm not saying he was killed by the police. What I am saying is if the police searched me every single day of my life, they'd find something eventually. Right. And if it was the third time they were searching me, I might try to hide that thing too. Right. But because I have the privilege of my socioeconomic status and I live in certain areas and I travel in certain ways, I'm never going to get searched. And it's not just the color of my skin because while I want white people to understand it about black people, I want affluent black people to understand it about the neighborhoods right. where people are packed right. in tightly and the neighborhoods that are very, very heavily policed and neighborhoods where stop and you're going to find something. about. If you watch me closely enough, right. you will find me doing something I'm not supposed right. to be doing. Right. I mean, I know, but also, like, it's 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 a yeah, it's it's easy to think that these things are just about race or whatever. But it, you, you're right; it's so much more complex than that. And one thing that you know, any white, white person who's trying to educate themselves around race needs to understand is that, that there's plenty of people of color out there who don't know shit about it. It's like insane. Who, who've had experiences because they've been in privileged right, bubbles, right. same way that white people are in yeah, privileged bubbles. Yeah. They just don't know and. and it's, it's super awkward and just as it is if you're a man and you meet a woman who says women, women have it easy like that's super awkward as yeah. a man to, to deal with it's also yeah. awkward as a white person to deal with right. a black person who's claiming racism doesn't exist doesn't exist but they do they, there are lots of people who do that and but that's but it's so weird shocking. because it's like that's another type of racism right where like right. you're not doing it on purpose but like I've been in circumstances with white people where they've asked me to explain like the plight of um, the black race. <laughs> right, and I'm like, right. I have no idea what the fuck you're talking right. about because I'm richer than you. <laughs> and right. like, it's this weird thing where when you're part of a certain class, you're asked to represent the entire system and where white people are just allowed to be just them. And so I was having dinner at a friend's house and her sister asked me, why there was such a high rate of unwed um, mothers in the black community. I was 18 years old. I'd just moved to America. I had no idea what she was talking about, but she really expected me to be an expert on this matter. But then on the flip side, I've also met people who, black people who have no idea and will have like a stronger, more impassioned argument about how racism is a figment of our imagination. Right. And so it's an odd balance, even for me, as I'm sure it would be an odd balance for a lot of people, but I feel like... So the other day I met this man, and he's English, white, um, public school boy, played rugby or some other thing. And we were talking about um, sexuality. And um, I said to him, I was just joking, I was drunk, I said to him, I think that 
90% of men have had a homosexual experience. Yeah, I don't think that's particularly unlikely. Yeah. And I said to him, so are you in the 10%? And he said, I mean, no. I went to, I think he said Venice. I don't remember. I went to Valencia once and I fucked a guy. And I said to him, what? He's like, yeah, I just went to Valencia and I fucked this guy. And I was like, then you're gay. And he was like, no, I'm not. And I'm like, did you enjoy it? He said, yes. I was like, then you're gay. And I said to him, I was about to say something more to him. And then I said to myself, why am I telling him what he is? Right, because he's, he could be bisexual, he could be it, pansexual, he might it not. It doesn't even matter. doesn't matter how he defines himself. Why am I telling him yeah, what he yeah. is? And so in the same way, I don't want to be the black person that is telling other black people what their experiences right, are. Right, right. I don't want to... Um, I have another story. Sorry, I'm going to keep doing this. No, this is who I am. I just tell stories. I went to... Um, Prague a long time ago to visit my cousin and while I was there she um, was dating at the time is married to now a Czech guy yeah and um, she was talking to him about Nigeria and she was saying the roads are terrible hospitals are bad and there's never water and there's never light and I was pissed and I was thinking to myself why is she saying all this like I'm here in Prague, in the Czech Republic, and there's so many places in Nigeria that are far better than this. Right. But I remembered my life in her Nigeria and hers was very, very different. Like I'm sitting here arguing with her about her description of what the world looked like from her perspective, right? And trying to infringe on her what the world looked like from my perspective. Right. And I want to be better about doing this, but it drives me so wild sometimes when I meet white people who are in a bubble and their perception of the world is so different from mine but because I think that the reason it's different is because they're being deliberately blind to what's going on and I cannot understand how they cannot see the same things that I'm seeing but now as an adult when I'm seeing that there are other people that look like me and are from my family but not necessarily um, immediate family that also perceive the world different than I do I want I want to believe it's made me more patient but it hasn't always right it's tough I had a is it okay can I tell yeah, another you, story you can, you can you can tell as many stories a good friend of mine asked me the other day and I regret the way I responded to her because it wasn't as kind as I would like to be, but I was so surprised. It was around the royal wedding, and she asked me where um, Meghan Markle's mom was from. <laughs> and my response was immediately, do I have to explain slavery oh to you? And I maybe shouldn't have said it that way, but it blew that's my mind. I think that's a reasonable re response. It blew my mind. <laughs> it blew my mind in that moment, because my response eventually was, sorry, I can't No, no, it's good. My response eventually was, um, I've heard that her family's from Jamaica, but you would have to ask Harry's parents and grandparents and the rest of them if they kept records about where they picked people up from Indeed, right. when they were making money off. Um, and I don't know how much the royal family actually profited from that, but I wouldn't be surprised. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, and you'd have to ask them where she's from because I don't have an answer for you. And so even though 
we have to be patient with one another and understand that everybody grew up in a different perspective. I do think that all of us have a duty as a member of the human race to find out more about the people that we're around. Right. And not in this weird general way. Like, I can't say I'm finding more about you by understanding just a monolithic idea of white males. No. Right. I need to know where you're from. Right, right. Exactly. Who yeah. And who you are. But How did you grow up? But people like me get given that of course. a lot. Like, we're, like, white men are allowed to be individuals, whereas people who are not white men like tend to be seen as representatives of their entire group Absolutely. and this is kind of what you're talking about like with, with all of those stories really that it, I mean it's it's super ridiculous to ask somebody like you know it's it's a little bit like the example I often give like because because you know I, I love my dad he's great but he's, he's you know he's 95 so he comes from a different generation yep. and like my example I always give of like how he's a really nice guy but he's still got a tiny little bit of racism in him is that when he got into the TV series The Wire okay. he would go down the street and if he saw a, a person of colour coming towards him he'd be, he'd be like you've got to see this TV oh, series <laughs> and he's doing it for all the right reasons yeah. he's thinking oh because it's representation and it's talking about your experience and, and he really know, enjoyed the series yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. and then also the other you know yeah absolutely and it's a series that, that talks a lot about the kinds of stuff we've been talking about absolutely. how we're divided and how that works um, but, but it's still is ridiculous to see somebody in, but because of their race uh, assume that they like have an interest in something that's to do with that yeah. like you know, it's, it's just it's just a, it's not it's not the worst kind of racism and it's always you know it was always it's more taken, of a microaggression yeah I would <laughs> say it's, it's a microaggression and he was just lucky that generally when he did it it was taken as like here's an old man being much more progressive than yeah. most people his age so yeah. it was generally taken in a much more positive way right. if I'd have been going around doing it you know in my 20s that wouldn't have been read the same way no, I would have got a lot not. more grief but it's much better than some examples I've been given about things that are supposedly not racist someone said to me once that um a friend of theirs had been transferred to Cameroon by their job and so to celebrate this move to Cameroon the group of friends decided to um, wear African print and paint their faces brown and go out for drinks at a pub in London and they were pissed because they got chucked out of the pub and they just couldn't understand why their freedom of speech was being infringed upon and I asked him if you had been one of the friends, because he claimed at the time that he wasn't one of the friends. I said, if you had been one of the friends and you were walking down the street and all of you were in blackface and you'd run into me, how would you have felt? And he said he would have been ashamed. And I said, well, it's weird that you'd feel ashamed if you see me, but you could see a thousand other right. people and you don't give a it's fuck London. how they feel about <laughs> what you're doing. You just don't care about how anybody else right. who sees you feels about what you're doing. Because you know what? Let me, um, controversial um, frame of mind or con con controversial position that I take. I think that people should be as racist as they want to be. I think people should live their loudest, most racist truth and just say, this is what I believe in, this is who I want to be, this is what I want to stand for. But they should also be willing to accept the consequences yep, of those right, actions. Right, right. Like, I think that if you want to paint your face black and go in the streets, if you want to call people the N-word like up and down the streets, you should do that. But if I come out and I see you and I want to beat the shit out of you, I should also be permitted <laughs> to do that. <laughs> 
like you shouldn't be allowed to just beat somebody up for no reason. No, but, it's, but it's, if there are general standards of behavior, yeah, speech has consequences. Absolutely, you say something, somebody else hears it. It's an exchange, exactly. And there will be results. From exactly, that. Yeah, absolutely. And the the thing that I find a lot, and going back to generalizing about a group that doesn't get generalized about enough, white males. <laughs> I find that white males have no issue with freedom of speech for themselves. They have a huge issue with freedom of speech for other people. Right. And I'll explain. They think that, they don't recognize that somebody responding to something that they have said or done is also a free right that they have. Right. Like you hear them talking about the Me Too movement so often and how it's going to change everything and how these crazy, angry feminists, and don't get me wrong, I don't think I've grown up in the generation of true, crazy, angry feminism. I think my generation is feminism light. So maybe these men have some place where they're coming from. Um, There's issues with feminism, but don't give those men a, a get out of jail whatsoever. free code. No, I'm saying maybe they're, yeah. com- maybe they're, they're coming just being, from somewhere. They're being kind and giving be, them a little bit. But none of them are speaking out against... Um, um, the menace movements or the men's rights yep. or the involuntary celibate those yep. types of movements no one's, they're not speaking out why are you targeting well, I mean, only women you know if they want it like that's the thing like yeah I mean as, as a man a white man who does speak out against those groups like it's very frustrating that nobody else yeah. in my demographic wants to support the work I do. Like Absolutely. I'm trying to fund a book, and like white men are the main people I want to fund that book, and they're not doing it because they just they don't care. Yeah, they don't care. I am publishing a book through Unbound. Unbound are a publishing company, which means that they don't publish things that they don't think are good and that they edit. The thing that makes them different from other publishing companies is their half publishing company and half crowdfunding company, which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books. They can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback, or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering. Unbound approached me in December to see if I wanted to adapt my show What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity into a book and I said yes please I definitely would like to do that and so that is what I'm doing. If you go to the Unbound website and there'll be a link to this in the show notes you can find Mansplaining Masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book. The way that this book is going to get made is by people like you pre-ordering it and pledging to it and people like you telling other people about it, sharing it on social media, recommending it to other people, those kinds of things. You can find out what the book is fully about by reading about it on the page. There's a video of me in a purple dress and fedora with my childhood toy dolphin telling you about what the book is about. But basically, Mansplaining Masculinity is about looking into myself and looking out at culture and thinking about how masculinity is constructed and created and how systematic elements contribute both to the ways that men are hurt by society, but also the ways that men hurt other people in society. It is not a book that says that men are the problem, but it is a book 
that will say that we can be part of the solution. And if you want to get an idea of what it's like before you pledge to it, you can listen to a podcast of the show that it's adapted from on the website mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. And also there was an episode of BBC Radio 4's Forethought called Liberating Men, which was a reflection on an extension of the show. So listen to those shows, see if you like what you hear, and if you do, then please do support and pledge to make mansplaining masculinity happen. Anything that doesn't affect people, they're willing to ignore. And I come from a demographic that so many things about life affect people or people who look like me or people who are from the country that I'm from. Um, I'm socially liberal, but I tend to be fiscally conservative. And um, when the elections were coming up, I was very, very close to voting um, conservative. And the last minute occurred to me, because I got my British passport three years ago, at the last minute it occurred to me to read their immigration policy. And I'm so stupid because I don't understand why that wasn't my first goal. But because I'd been removed from the demographic that that affected by receiving a passport in the mail that said you are no longer an immigrant, I didn't read it. And then I read it at the last minute because I remembered who I was. And I was like, no, I'm not, I don't stand for this. And that's when I shifted. And it's easy to be conservative when you are male and part of the majority mm-hmm. and living in the country where you were born and right. raised because your the father status was quo is good for exactly, you. Exactly. And it's very, very hard to step out of your bubble and step into somebody else's life experience. I had a moment once, a breakthrough with someone. I don't think it went very far. But he had never viewed himself as part of the majority because he was always an expat. He's French, living in the UK. But he didn't. it didn't occur to him that despite that, he was still white and still right. male. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the other thing. Like, people from my demographic rarely experience the harshness of free speech. Yeah. Which is why, like, we're so often, like, so butthurt when, like, somebody says anything about us. Whereas, like, I was othered at school. I did experience, like, people shouting names at me. I did experience people spitting at me and that sort of stuff. Um, Which doesn't mean that when I came out of school I wasn't super privileged and didn't... Like, that was a problem. I I, I didn't didn't realise I was, you know, privileged because I was still in the place of school of, like, I'm still experiencing this Mm. stuff all the time. But, like, I'm very aware that lots of men... Not, not working class men necessarily, not like men with other intersections or whatever, but like men like me, middle class white men, um, who weren't spat at in school, they've just like never been, they've never had anyone say, who you are is bad. Right. And so now when people are like, hey, white men, they're, they're a problem, they're like, oh my God, you said white men and that's othering me and that makes me different and oh God, what am I supposed to do? Like, th- you're horrible, you're a horrible person. It's, and it's like, no, you're doing that already. Yes. You're already saying those things to people, but when they say those things back to you, you're like, <gasps> and it's, uh, it's just like, it's, 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 it's also, it's, it's, it's so unequal. The, it the is two so things. unequal. It's like someone's like, like using, like 
hitting someone with a stick and then in response like there's a matchstick and like the person with the stick's like ow <laughs> and the person with the matchstick's like oh I'm getting hit with a stick all the time I can deal but you're supposed to get used to it because <laughs> right. you've always been going through this I'm not kidding like a white guy said to me the other day that white guys are the most um, beat up on <laughs> group in the world right now. Anybody can say anything they People want keep to saying us, this and shit. no one can say anything to anyone else. And I was like, can you hear yourself? Yeah. Can you hear yourself? You're crazy. But people truly believe yes. this nowadays. Absolutely. It's so weird that they believe it, but I guess it's because there is a pushback yeah. and they're experiencing these things for the first time. But yes. like, there is a sort of only so far you can take yeah. empathising with other people's yes. circumstances and like you were saying earlier on there comes a, t- a point where it's like sure I get why you have those but you've just got to learn quick you have to, you you've got have to get to quick up. you've got to do it you quick because if, if you don't do it quick like where are we going to go from yeah. here because the only thing that can help everybody is for white men to work it out yeah Plus, absolutely I heard the best quote the other day and it is so meaningful all of the years that we've lived, white men have believed there is only one voice. But the way you have to look at things is that there isn't only one voice, there's just only been one microphone. Right. And now, they think they're being silenced, but what's actually happening is the microphone is being passed around to where we're allowed to hear other voices. Right. And so because they've held onto it alone for so long, the minute it gets out of their hands, they see it as deprivation. Right, they'll never well, get it back. They feel like they will <laughs> never get it back yeah. because they've never had to share the microphone before. They've never heard what anybody else had to say before because it's always been just their one voice, just this one sound. I mean, I think it's it's so weird as well. Like, it's even more like, like it's, it's that, but it's also like we're, like when we're talking about the person with a microphone, which is, you know the white straight middle class man we're not even hearing from all of those voices because white uh, straight middle class men are are trying to present uh, an image of how they're supposed to be yes so like it's even like it's it's just so complicated on on every level really absolutely I think it's it's slightly confusing to me because they're they're putting chairs up but I don't know are you closing soon oh no you're just that's cool thank you I'm yeah. Trying my best not to make sound here. Appreciate oh, no, it. That's very appreciated. <laughs> yeah, like that's the, that's the thing that I I think when people are talking about representation, which you know I I, I believe in um, for all sorts of reasons, like that you can't you can't be what you can't see, and I think that applies to everyone, Absolutely. and not just like people who we call minorities but like often people we call minorities aren't minorities in a global sense right as as a middle class white man i often look at look at media and don't see myself very often mm. like the, the essential parts of who i am like right. i see i see people who look like me all and the who time present as part of this the your sector of society yeah. but still aren't who you are yeah, yeah absolutely and so and so if, if I feel unrepresented like again it's a bit like how, what I was talking about when I was saying I've moved all around the UK and I don't feel like I've got any sense of place right. that seems like a ridiculous thing to say to someone who's moved all around the world and doesn't have a sense of place but like yeah it, 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 if I don't feel represented how the hell yeah. does everybody else feel right. like, and then imagine now like when there's 
years, there are now currently quite a few minority faces on TV, but it's still the token model minority. Right. And so there's like a brown guy or a black guy or an Asian guy somewhere who is you in his country, but he's seeing um, people who look like him on TV, but they're still not him. And they're never going to get to him because yeah. he's so far down the totem pole of just like a different type of person, yeah, a different yeah. type of personality. I mean, it's going to be a long time on TV before there's anything other than like the hyper-masculine like male hero. Right. <laughs> it's like, that's it. Like insecurity. I'd like to see more men who are insecure. I'd yeah. like to see like more men who don't know what the hell to do and then not to be comic roles as well like it's either like you're a ridiculous man who doesn't know what to do or you're a heroic man Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then like when we're saying like that we're talking about men like you're saying like there's a there's a you know a, a, a black man out there who is only seeing like occasional representation and it's all like hyper masculinity um and then there's also a, a black girl who's seeing even less yeah or yeah. a black woman who's yeah. seeing even less and so it's it's ah oh, it's it's yeah and we're not going to solve it no here we're not in, in, but in you, know what, you, you know what's happening right now <laughs> that there's this girl on um a terrific horrific tv show that i love now is love island right she's black she's gorgeous and she's so awkward in the most adorable way right and she, she's not mixed race she's um, dark skinned right, black woman right. she's gorgeous and the whole country is rooting for her and opposite her is the, the palest whitest British accented um, guy and he's a doctor and he's like failing woefully at dating and it's beautiful to see not the similarities in who they are, but the similarities in their struggle, right. in their story, because it humanizes both right. of them. I mean, this all comes back to Spark, right? Yeah. Because it's what you get from Spark. It's like you see how, like you said earlier on, how similar we all are, but you also you see that by exploring the differences, yeah. the specifics, the individuals that we all are as well. Like, And that's what you get from Spark. That sounds like what you're getting from Love Island. Absolutely. Which is great. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I haven't watched, I, I, you know, I have neither watched Love Island or the World, World Cup, so I feel completely out of sync with I, society. I don't think you could stomach it, so I wouldn't <laughs> I probably bother. could, you know. I don't know. You'd be surprised. I don't know. You'd be surprised. I've liked, you know, I've watched an, quite a lot of reality TV in my time, but you're right. Probably maybe not now. I don't know. I, I, I like the things that people are saying about it. So okay. I, I, whether I watch it or not, I think I approve of it, but potentially. I approve of what Even you're saying. Even the objectification well, and the horrible double standard. Everything's problematic, Everything right? So, is problematic. Like, I like loads of things that are problematic, so yeah. I'm sure I can I get I love into, problematic to, shit. You know, oh. I, I really love the, the new new series of uh, Queer Eye. Like, there's been two series of that, and that's... Like, I've loved that recently, but, like, I don't love that, you know, without... Yeah. Quite, you know, without things I find troublesome about it but yeah. the overall effect of it I think is amazing and positive and yeah. so I, maybe Love Island is the same I don't know I've not watched it yeah that's so. true I can't I will recommend um, a show that I think you might like because I think um, one of the characters in the show you might identify with have you seen the show Atlanta yet yes I do love <laughs> Atlanta yeah because I love how that kid is um, uh, that um, Danny Glover plays is not hyper anything he's just a person who's like trying to um trying to get trying to exist right Right. like he's a guy 
he hasn't followed any of society's paths for how his life should go. He has one foot in this world and one foot in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just like yeah, the the, the, the character played by Donald Glover is very, Donald Glover, yeah, yeah, not yeah. Danny Glover. No, that's fine. Um, but I think I think he gets that all the time. I should imagine. Yeah, uh, but that's who he is in real life too. Like he's just this kind of like oddball guy that like people can't figure out. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's it. There's a whole load of people who are completely invisibilized because they don't fit anywhere yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually I think there's more and more of us who don't fit actually maybe that's the norm yeah um, but you and, know. but we've been striving for so long to fit <laughs> that we didn't know that that was the norm and so right. coming to it, something like spark I know this is an, like, yeah, an no, advert right. for spark helps you fit by not fitting because you see that no one else does either yes yeah and I'm sure even in weirdness and even in like oddball culture we'll still find ways to create like hierarchies and like yeah what works and what doesn't work because it's human nature to have an in-group and an out-group right but it doesn't matter like I don't know I feel like nothing actually matters like everything we strive for is pointless and everything that we do wrong is pointless and so what's the point of doing wrong things like what's the point of enslaving people when you're going to die one day you can't spend all the money right. you're going to make on all of this and then even like working super hard at um doing things honestly but like you spend your entire life doing it that's stupid too because you're going to lose your health and your mental health in order right. to like achieve these things like entertaining people like you play sports or do whatever and then you hurt yourself doing it or you um i'm having a um not issues right now but like i'm um struggling right now at this like one tiny encapsulated period in my life which is not entirely true because i'm sure i've had this at various stages of my life where I'm like not super accepting about the way that I look and I worry about um, beauty right and I never grew up like with a mom who said oh this is how to do your hair and this is how to put makeup on right. this is how to do this and that and the other and sometimes I wonder like would my life be different if I spent more time doing those things and then other times I really just don't want to commit the time that it would take right. and for most time I just it doesn't matter to me I don't really care at all and it's so funny because when I say it to people they think I'm crazy because I um, choose clothes carefully and I try yeah. to be clean and so people think that I do care about those things and in reality it's one of the things that I think is pointless like you can like like, I, I just, I couldn't imagine, like, spending loads of money on boobs and, like, hair extensions and eyelashes and all of that stuff. And that's not true because I do it occasionally because I think it's fun when you're going to a party to, like, put eyelashes on or, like, have hair extensions. I do. But, like, to do it every day and to commit that much time and to still be, like, but it's somebody lonely else's and never standard. think that you're, like, still never think that you're beautiful. Yeah. Like, but it's, that's the thing, it's somebody else's standard. Like, we've, we've all been given somebody else's standard and we're all judging ourselves. Like, we're not finding what we think is beautiful. But how do you often. find that? I know. How do you decide I don't know. for yourself, all on your own, I don't know. what you think is I mean, beautiful. I've always felt like, 
like I've never felt like attractive or those kinds of things um, and I'm a, you know I guess I'm closer slightly closer because I'm white to the kind of standards but not 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 that close um, and so it's it's horrible like we've learned to think to not appreciate the things about how we are because yeah. we're trying to be something else. something else and we can never we can never like you know you can never be that other thing yeah like it's, it's finding out to love right. what we are which doesn't mean I, we can't I wear luckily, makeup but yeah, it just I means it I just luckily means, grew up in a majority um, black country at least some parts of Nigeria where Right. Whiteness was never right. Was truly the standard for me. Truly, never the standard. That's good. For me. But it's somehow still other. But it's still global yeah. anyway, isn't it? It still gets like it's Hollywood movie. It still gets into you anywhere. Yeah. I think the funny thing is Nigerian uh, movie industry is. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, huge. So I think I I, I think um, fair skin. But not quite white. Right. But fair skin. So still influenced by global and racism. And not so much but. anymore because there's like this huge new celebration. But skinniness is always going to be the global idea, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. Although nowadays, like it's like bigger bums and bigger boobs or whatever. I don't yeah, know. but it's like the goalposts shift, but they still hurt somebody. Somebody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been really great getting better acquainted with you today. Like it's been like I feel like it's been a really great conversation. No, it's flown by good, for me. Yeah. I feel like it's been quite a, quite a long one, but yeah. Uh, but it's flown by. It feels like it's been much less time than it has been. Mm-hmm. Um, the last question I ask everybody is: Do you have anything to plug? Like, no, it's so weird. I don't. Well, come to Spark. Yeah, Spark's a plug. Brixton, third Monday of every month I'll say second Monday too just in case I'm wrong about one no it's the third Monday it's the third Monday of every month in Brixton at the Ritzy Picture House but that might change we're talking about maybe moving locations but stories.co.uk or sparklondon.com or .co.uk uh, we'll give you all the information you need I guess yeah. and there's also and a one day I Twitter will have and a Facebook to plug. I don't know I've been thinking about a couple of businesses for a while selling African art here in the UK and I have like oh I do have one Instagram that people can follow it's Sanakasua and it's S-A-N-A-A-K-A-S-U-W-A and it's me showcasing African art that I find when I travel when I get in touch with the artists and I tell people if you're interested you can get in touch with me and I can get you um in touch with the artist or get you get something over to you here in the UK so it's Sanakasua um on Instagram if anyone's interested in that at all yeah brilliant I mean yeah, I think that's you know you said you didn't have a plug but you kind of had to yeah I know so that's yeah. good um, and the last thing I asked my guests uh, to do is to say goodbye to the audience oh uh, this has been great I cannot imagine that anyone would be interested in my life or my <laughs> rantings and ravings especially since I've bored most of my family and friends with this for so many years now. But thank you guys for listening and um, goodbye audience Bye, everyone. If you're interested in hearing about masculinity and what patriarchy does to men and to all people, if you go to the Unbound website, and there'll be a link to this in the show notes, you can find Mansplaining Masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book. Unbound is a kind of cross between a publishing company and a crowdfunding company, which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books 
pre-order those books. They can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback, or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering. You can find all of that stuff over on mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. If you're interested in reading about me and my dad and our relationship and dementia and memory and time and history and politics and love and friendship check out my essay series down to a sunless sea memories of my dad as well as making getting better acquainted i also co-produce and i guess star in the magical realist audio drama podcast the family tree in order to keep making it and to make season two as good as we want it to be we need your help so if you can afford to then please do consider signing up to our patreon appeal you can find getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can find it on facebook at getting better acquainted and you can find it anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet and if you want to email me personally that's gbapodcast at gmail.com or i'm goosefat101 on twitter and remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted